this is the first ever 4B with Margit, and um, it'll be a weekly show at 4 p.m. Pacific time with me. And today I'm joined by my boss and co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz, Mark Andreessen. Um, you really don't need a last name anymore, um, Mark. So um, I thought we should explain what 4B stands for. So um, when we started uh, doing marketing for the firm, and by the way, for those of you who don't know me, I am the head of marketing, which is all the marketing and the content that we produce at the firm. So that's who I am. And I used to run my own agency, launched the firm, and then I joined about 10 plus years ago. Um, about, I want to say, six, seven years ago, we went from this new shiny object to like, we're a big established VC firm, which by the way, I still don't think we are like that, but there you go. And then everybody, we also start. Every, everybody else does. Yeah, that's the, that's the deciding factor actually. Um, it's not me. So, and then at the same time, we started to have portfolio companies that were becoming very, very big. So I figured it was time to write a crisis plan just because we were going to hit some skids and our portfolio companies would need the help. And, um, so I wrote the plan and I thought it was very important that we need, had a code word because like you don't want to put the name of the portfolio company and the word crisis on the calendar for everyone to see on their iPhone screen when it pops up. So um, I think it was you, Mark, who said like 4B, just the word 4B. And I'm like, what 4B? And it's like, well, plan 1A through 4A haven't worked out. So we're really bad in bad shape. So now it's 4B. Now it's 4B. So I Googled it. Exactly. And it would return like, the names of classrooms at middle schools, it was certainly not some regulatory thing, whatever. It's like, all right, it's stuck. So 4B with Margaret is all about those topics, but more broadly, it's about, you know, builders building companies and building reputations around them and how we think about that and how we go about doing that. And then also, yes, what do we do when stuff goes really, really sideways, which it, it inevitably does. If there's anybody in the startup world, in this audience who is convinced that everything is going to go right for them, then you should keep listening because we have lots of examples. In fact, and I'll stop talking then, um, I used to have a slide in our reverse pitches when we tell companies what it's like to work with us, where I had all the examples of all the crises we'd seen. And then I decided that was too scary <laughs> because it was just like, oh my God, all of this can go wrong. Anyhow. All right. So this is the show and um, we solicited some questions and Mark is also a very curious person. So he's going to grill me on whatever topic he likes. Good. And then maybe we'll argue with some of the answers. Yes, um, probably. So, so um, yeah, so th since this is the first show, I thought that it would make sense to basically start with kind of the most fundamental question. Um, and, and this is something, by the way, I learned, you know, years ago, um, which basically is like you, you enter business and then, you know, some things go right, some things go wrong. And then if you're lucky when things go wrong, like and, and something develops into full-blown crisis, um, if you're lucky, you get to work with somebody who's like a trained professional expert at a, at a field that is literally known as crisis management. Um, and it actually turns out like there's, there are actual like playbooks for crisis management. There are actually, um, you know, there, there are actually like actual plans you can execute. And, you know, this, this used to kind of be like a hidden secret. And then it's probably what the TV show, uh, scandal, um, you know, has probably been the sort of fictionalization of, uh, of this thing. So more, more people know about, you know, the Olivia, the various Olivia Pope, uh, methods used both in, you know, on that show and in real life. Um, but yeah, maybe start with, with the basics, which is for, for somebody who hasn't run into this before, um, Margaret, like. What what would you describe is like the classic playbook uh, for dealing with a crisis uh, with a company? Okay, so the frustrating answer to this is like it really, really, really depends on the details. So um, it, it just depends on like what are the actual facts, right? Like what's the style of the CEO? Like what, you know, 
it, it really, really is specific. But the way I like to think about it is when something happens, really the ideal playbook looks like a short book. And essentially, it's sort of like a whodunit kind of thing, like what happened, why did it happen, how are we going to fix it? And you answer all the questions. And then that, that gives your customers, your employees, press, gives all the audience a satisfactory answer. It's like, okay, I get what happened. I get that they're doing something about it. And I can close this chapter. Because like the longer the thing goes on, the more it takes over every thought that people have about your company or your you as a person or whatever the, the situation may be. So if you find yourself in a pickle like that, like try to make the book short. And the way to make the book short is to answer all the questions that people have in their minds. And that restores the confidence. Like, okay, I get it. They're all over it. Like, I, I don't have these lingering thoughts. And it's like, are they really the people I thought they were? And it's a little bit like sort of a, if you, you have a starting point from some sort of trust bank account and the crisis blows a hole, like all of a sudden you're at a trust deficit. So how, how do you restore that as quickly as possible? So, and then, you know, the, the, the cliche, right. Um, and I'm going to ask a few questions about this topic, but you know, the, the cliche of this stuff, at least in politics, and I think also in corporate crisis management, the cliche is that it's not the crime that gets you, it's the cover up. Um, yeah, it's what you, it's what you don't. So, I was, so the thing that I've always found striking about that, um, is like, well, except for all the successful cover ups, <laughs> right? Like well, by, by definition, by definition, we don't know when that's untrue because we don't know about all the cover ups. And so I guess I would say based, based on your experience, like. When, when, when things go seriously wrong in a way that causes lasting damage, like how often is it the crisis itself versus how long is it, you know, to your point on the, on the, the short book, how often is it that basically you don't say everything up front and then you end up with this dragged out thing where everything does come out over time and, and that ends up damaging you much more, much, much, much more severely? Well, that's exactly the point. That, that, that's like you, you at some point just assume you're going to have to answer all the questions. So this is where people get sideways when they think of a crisis as a PR problem. And they go like, oh, I'll just talk to the PR person. The PR person will talk to the reporter out of writing the thing, right? No, it's usually a business problem. Like the product doesn't work or, you know, someone died on an airplane or whatever it is, right? Like it's an actual yeah. thing. Yeah. And so you can't, you, you just have to like, just pretend you're Catholic and you're going to have to make the fucking confession, right? <laughs> so do the whole thing and do it very convincingly and, and like, the, there's no way around it. Now, there are the most successful crises I have come across are the ones that never see the light of day precisely because people do all the right things right when it matters. And then you can make a convincing case to your employees or other stakeholders to say like, okay, here's what happened. Here's what we're do doing about it. And people go like, okay, I trust that. Mm -hmm. And then there's not much reason to write, write about it. Right. So that's that's the whole point. It's like the it's it's always the cover up and it's the hiding and it's the whatnot. I I remember I I'm so old. I, I had IBM as a client in 1996 and they were the sponsor for the Olympic Games in Atlanta. And, you know, Mark, you remember when Netscape went public. That was 1995. Correct. Right. Mm -hmm. So yep. there, there was the Internet. But IBM had the genius idea that they would run all the Olympic games on their, their info 96 client server based system. Right. And, you know, what happened, the tricky bit with the Olympics is the competition managers get to change the rules of the game, like up until the night before, well, client server software doesn't work like that. So we had 15,000 accredited reporters in the media center 
using Info96. And instead of getting the long jump results, they would get the shoe size of the athlete. <laughs> or they could go to an internet cafe in Atlanta and dial up and get the actual freaking results, mm -hmm. right? And so the time it took for them to explain that or recover from that was ridiculously long because nobody wanted to, to admit that the internet may be a thing and that oh, the client right. server thing may be not the thing. So, right. yeah. That was, it was the, it was the, it wasn't. And the thing is you would say cover up and, but mm -hmm. the more subtle version of it, it it's denial. Mm -hmm. That can't be right because our product is so great. Mm -hmm. That can't be right because the servers do scale. Mm -hmm. That can't be right because my people are good people, mm -hmm. right? It's the, it's the denial, the lying to yourself that you do that leads to the lying to the outside world that gets you into trouble. Yeah, and you're highly you're highly motivated to lie to yourself because not only do you have internal implications for the for the issue, but you then you know right. you, you know that there's like massive embarrassment coming at you. Right. Right, and, and of course you know. And, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, like you know, in big companies, people get fired, right? Like so, like right. careers on the line, lives are on the line. You know, entire yeah, so, product lines get shut down right in the wake of crises, and so it's it's like the stakes get very high very fast. Right. So I don't, I don't know if you remember, but like the big, the key element of our crisis plan was like, what's the culture that yep. you're going to have as a company around crisis, which is mm -hmm. honesty is the top, like actually seeking the truth is the thing that most, that gets rewarded the most. Mm -hmm. So if you're in the, the engineer who has screwed this up, or if you're the boss who yelled at the person or whatever it is, right, you need to reward that honesty because otherwise people shut down, they hide under their desks, and then you don't find out the truth. Then you're covering up their cover-up, and it is a big, big giant, freaking mess. So you need to reward the honesty and like suspend any sort of judgment, punishment, retribution, firing, whatever else. Now, someone breaks the law, of course, they're going to have to be consequences, but like not in that moment. That moment, it's about speed to truth. It's all about speed to truth. And how do you do the trade-off? Something you run into in larger companies is you may not actually know the truth, right? So I've, I've seen this where it's like, okay, something has gone wrong. Well, even like your IBM case is an example. It's like, okay, like, you know, the, yeah, the results are wrong, but like, why are the results wrong? Like, what actually is going on? Like, who made the mistake? Like, you know, the people on the team saying they're going to be able to fix it. Like, you know, should we, you know, like, and it's just like, or, or, or like, let's say even in like a product quality case, you know, you, you ship the whatever skin cream out the door and you put it on shelves and it turns people's skin green, right? Um, <laughs> right, and it's like, um, you know, it's like, okay, like, you you may not even know, like, at the point where that becomes apparent, like, what's causing that? Like, let's say you're the skincare company, you might actually not even know if there are going to be any health, if it's purely cosmetic, or there could be health consequences. And so you don't always have these answers. And so how do you, how do you, like, when it gets into like a crunch where it's like, okay, we only have partial information and we're busily investigating, but we don't know yet, but everybody's expecting us to come talk. And, and of course, then there's the real risk. We're going to say things that are incorrect. And then we're going to look, you know, doubly stupid. Like, yeah. how, how, would, how would you advise a client to navigate through that? That's a real messy part. That's really, really the hard part. That's when it gets, that's when the book gets longer, right? Mm -hmm. And that's usually the case. So that's where, like, that's why you have this tension between like speed and accuracy, right? And if you don't, but do not fall into the strap of like, well, I don't know, but this is the answer that sounds good. And like the comms people, I'm just going to take the comm side of the house, like they get enormous pressure to sell the, the best answer versus deal with the fact that we don't know. And if you don't know, you're not going to earn trust by lying. You need to just say like, look, we don't know. And here's what we're doing to find out. The beauty of this is that it actually leads you to the right answer. 
right? Because if you commit to go like, oh, this is, we are doing X, Y, and Z to find out, and we will be communicating answers as we have them, you actually then need to go and do that, which ends up being the right thing to do. And this is not one of those, like, this is the, the place where you need to do the right thing. And if the right thing takes longer, it takes longer. And that then that is your best answer. But like, don't do the best, the, the answer that's easiest to sell that is possibly not the truth. Because once you're in a pickle, then you contradict yourself, then you're a jerk. You know, that then right. then tr- the, your trust deficit, like then you get into real deficit discussion, discussions. Okay, so I think we'd, we'd probably, anybody who's worked in the field would probably agree, like, this is the playbook. Let's say for sure this is the playbook up through, like, 2010, 2012, maybe 2015. Um, and then you've got, obviously, <laughs> like, a significantly changed, let's say, media landscape uh, over the last, like, five to ten years. And let's let's hypothesize, Margaret, let's hypothesize that a couple things have changed. Um, one is that, you know, it, you know, kind of everything you've talked to up till now has to do, essentially, with working through the press uh, as the sort of intermediary. Uh, which is like the the traditional the traditional way that things were done because that was the the way to get messages out, and now of course there are all these new channels, many of which are direct channels, right? Uh, so on the one hand, you've got like basically new forms of sort of things coming at you, right? You've got like people on Twitter and social media, like maybe you know making all kinds of accusations about your skin cream also causes you know limbs to drop off and stuff like that, um, <laughs> right? But you've also got the opportunity, at least in theory, to use these alternate channels, um, you know, to quote unquote route around the press, and then. You know, some people some people might argue the press was, was slightly more inclined to write positive or even neutral stories about businesses uh, in the past, and may, maybe a little bit less so now. And so, how um, how have you updated the playbook um, sort of since such uh, changes <laughs> may have occurred? Right. So there there are actually there are many many layers of changes. So one one set of changes is that I think in this heightened environment that we have, where people are just much more driven by uh, outrage, I would say, and like, and we have ever increasing levels of what constitutes a problem, right? Like, words are crises now, right? Like, it's just so the 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 what what constitutes a crisis just gets very very murky, right? Because the the employees, reporters, right? Like, it's it's not just press, but like a lot of folks get like very worked up over things that you know, you as a CEO or as an investor or as another employee might go like, I don't know why that's a problem. But like all of a sudden you have all these other problems. And then yes, to your specific question, it's like, okay, there are many, many, many more options of dealing with a crisis. Doesn't mean that the press channel goes away. And, you know, in a crisis, I still, this may be where we disagree, in a crisis, I still think that's a very, very important audience to, to, to engage with. But you have a lot of options, right? Um, the so you have the option of writing your own blogs, like posting on Medium, doing your own LinkedIn thing, being on Twitter, being in the Reddit forums, being on GitHub, like wherever wherever your community is, right? You can find the community and engage with the community there directly. I will say though, that is something that you should that muscle needs to be built before you have a crisis, mm-hmm. because if you've never ever engaged with the community directly and all. you know then you write a blog post that's a little bit out of left field so like don't believe i don't think i think it's naive to think that you can circumvent the press or whatever by just writing writing your own version of the story when there are 50 other versions and you have no record of writing stuff that you think about the company or your product or your business um, before at all so this is a long game 
You can't just go start that in the moment of crisis. Mm-hmm. Well, like, you know, because you know, one idea you might have, for example, even more screen than that, right, would be, boy, we can recruit our employees, right? And our employees could kind of fan out on social media and they could interact with people on Twitter and they could go and, you know, the, the Reddit board for, you know, skin creams. And, you know, they could, you know, when people are posting all this inaccurate stuff, you know, they could, you know, they could post the apology, they could post explanations of things. And, you know, you, you, you know, you, like that, that method now exists. Um, it, yeah, I guess, yeah, but maybe you've already answered that, the question, but the question is like, what's the, the, well, the potential return on that is very high, but is it just simply too risky or, or could you, or could you set what, could you wire an organization to actually have that be a tactic? Yeah, sure. You, you could, but like, I, so say like, we've actually knock on wood, um, not been in a situation where we've, where we've had your, our own crises, um, at least in my definition of the word crisis, yeah. other people may disagree, but, um, but like, say somebody really screwed up at the firm, mm-hmm. like as the person responsible for the overall reputation, I have a hard time going to recruit our employees and say like, hey, can you stand up for this person? You know what I mean? That That's just a tricky, that gets an internally tricky thing. So I think that's like, you're much better off is a, if as a leadership team, you have sort of trained the muscle of everybody and including yourself to go like, okay. We are going to talk about our thinking on product and all kinds of things. And then when you are all of a sudden playing defense, it becomes ever more powerful. Right. Right. Okay, good. We're going to go to the questions now. We're going to go to questions. I will say, uh, I, yeah, I just want to emphasize how, how, how important it is for companies to think about like the whole, like what is actually a crisis? Um, mm-hmm. Because, I mean, in today's world, I'm not sure Steve Jobs would have kept this job. You know, like the, the, it's it's gotten to a heightened level of like what what's what the word scrutiny means and what's legit scrutiny. So, I do also think that um, as companies, and particularly the poor CEOs who run these companies, like the level of the the thickness of the rhino skin that you have to develop is just tremendous. Um, so I would get ready for that. Yeah. So on that topic, so we're we're gonna shift to questions now, all from Twitter. So thank, thanks everybody who who uh, who sent questions. Um, so we're gonna, I want to address that that question that question specifically. So the the, the question uh, came in as follows, which is I'm curious what Margaret thinks are the exact steps an, an influencer, prominent individual, or CEO should take if they get canceled on social media. And let's say Margaret, let's say in this case specifically, canceled means you know they they you know they said something or there's a report that they did something that kind of touches one of these kind of you know kind of newly let's say energized third rail topics, you know mm-hmm. like race or gender or politics. Um, or you using know, they, the R word. They the showed up <laughs> using the R word. Is that uh, <laughs> maybe? I, I go back and forth on whether that whether the R word means a Republican or reporter. Um, <laughs> but some, 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 somebody somewhere knows the answer to what, what the R word is. Um, yeah. So let's say, you know, let's say somebody gets caught, you know, uh, somebody gets caught, you know, so CEO gets caught naked and, you know, in, in, in bed with the wrong person, you know, sleeping on a my pillow, uh, with his, you know, mega hat on, um, uh, you know, wearing black, <laughs> wearing, wearing blackface. Um, right. So I'm too busy laughing to answer this question. One of, one of, one of these things happen. One of these things happens. Um, so, so like in the event that it touches these particularly kind of potent issues, like what, like how, how do you, like how do you advise us specifically uh, on, uh, on you know, either, uh, you know, like either like, yeah, let's just, yeah, well, let's look, say cancellations. This is, this is one of those, like, I don't know how to put this, right? Like, what if you had to call your mom and tell your mom, like, how bad would that be? You know what I mean? Like, I, I think step one is that you have to figure out, like, how, how bad is this? You know what I mean? Like, what? 
like, is this a crisis or is this somebody getting worked up over something that like, I don't agree with. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And like every, every person and particularly every CEO, every leader has to answer that question for themselves and probably put out some guidance for the company. And by the way, I am not talking about actually unprofessional behavior or stuff that breaks the law or whatever. Right. So (laughs) that's step number one. Like, is it an actual crisis? And if it's not a crisis, then you can make some guidelines for yourself, right? So the there are there are it's worth thinking about the guiding principles of like how one behaves in a situation like that. So for example, at our place, you know, and this is mostly in response to how Mark is wired, is like if we feel like somebody is saying something that is inaccurate about the firm or our funds or whatever, we're just going to always leave, we'll never leave that unanswered. That's just how we roll. There are companies, and that's a totally legit strategy, who will go like, you know what, all the stuff that people say that we just think is like unimportant, but like maybe negative, we're just going to ignore. But like pick one of those and stick with it. And once you comment, you're always expected to comment. If you never comment, people go like, okay, that's just not, that's not how they roll. But there is a next level of like, okay, how seriously should you take this? And this very much depends on who you are and what the product does. Say you're Kim Kardashian, right? And Mm -hmm. Kim Kardashian puts the person in her ads who uh, she freed from jail by meeting with Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. right? And people Mm -hmm. get very worked up about that. Mm -hmm. Well, so in Kim Kardashian's case, it's interesting because she kind of is the product. Like Mm -hmm. her, her support like leggings, whatever she is, she's selling, like that sells because it's coming from her. Mm-hmm. So she kind of has a bigger problem, right? It, mm-hmm. uh, and she tried to ignore it and I don't think that was working. And then she addressed it and people was like, all right, I'm buying her stuff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If you are a product CEO and, you know, you were caught at a party in the 80s with blackface, but you're running a company that is like super, super important and growing and like the people who buy your product don't really care. Mm-hmm. I don't know that you need to care. Mm-hmm. But like those are those are things that you need to think through. And I think it's very, very important to go like, okay, what's your personal tolerance level? Like what like how how much are you committed to standing to what you stand for? Or how much are you committed to pleasing people? Yep. And I think right now people are running a very dangerous game where they're running companies as popularity contests. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna pull out my former I've run a company hat. If you're running a company as a popularity contest, you are fucking doomed. Like at at no point are you going to ever make anybody happy if that is your goal. Mm-hmm. So I would just try to shed that one and and figure out what your principles are and what you're going to respond to. If you are the product, it's mm-hmm. a slightly different case. And by popular, popularity contest, you mean a leader? Let's just let's see if I understand it. It's it's a leader who prioritizes being liked um, over being respected or being like firmly in command. Like how would you how would you describe that? Yeah. So look, if you know. If if as a leader, if enough people tweet negative stuff about me that I feel like I'm going to have to change my stance on something, right? Mm-hmm. And I've done that routinely. Or if enough people go and complain or write the letter that says, like, we don't like this. And that's like, well, if you don't like it, then I'm not going to do it. Then you are going to be, basically, you're, you're running a hostage situation. And guess mm-hmm. what? You are the hostage. So whatever it is that enough people don't like, you're going to then have to change 
so that you can keep your like popularity score. And that is just the worst way to run a company. People actually like, I think they're okay. Uh, Brian, I'm going to have you on a show soon. So don't worry. I'm just dismissing a speaker. So people, I think are okay with decisions that they may not agree with as long as they understand why the decision was made, what the principle is that is behind it and how you're overall making these kinds of decisions. Mm -hmm. What people are not okay with is like whims Mm -hmm. over time. They're, they're okay with the whim when it's in their favor. Right. They're not okay with the whim if they don't like the whim. Right. And part of that, part of that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I I think what you're saying is if I understand, it's like you're at some point you're just signaling flat out unreliability. Yeah. I mean, that's the extreme version of it. It's like, I can't count on you. So I'm going to make you count for me at least. Well, how divisive is that? That's the extreme version. Uh, I mean, it just, it just is going to go horribly sideways and we see it on display all over the place. And um, I, you know, I I would want to run that company. I wouldn't wouldn't want to work there. And I think over time, that's just going to play play itself out in a sad way. Yeah, and then that gets to a related question, which also goes actually as relevant even to the to the old style of crises also, which is like you actually as a CEO, right? You you actually you have multiple constituencies, right? And so the the press is obviously one, and then there are other external constituencies like the customers and the regulators and distributors and so forth, right? But there's also this like incredibly important internal constituency, which yeah. is your you know which is your it's you know broadly your employee base, and then kind of you know especially within that your executive team and your board of directors. Um, and so maybe, yeah, maybe talk a little bit about like, how is a, has a, how is this, how, how have you seen CEOs kind of navigating through those, those two constituencies and, um, and like, how, and yeah, and how do you think like that's changing? Well, the problem is it's kind of all the same a little bit, right? Because, you know, there's no such thing as separate internal communications from external communication because we all go sideways. They all leak the internal comms and like, we've seen all of that. It's all the same, but think, think of, think of. Think of your employees as like, they are the people who are your best champions, but they can only do that job if they believe in the company, the mission, and the decisions you make. They don't have to like them, but they have to be able to explain them to their spouses, their dates, their children, their other colleagues, their former bosses, their, you know, like that's the, that's the, that's a trick of it all. There are no easy answers in many, many cases, particularly when you're in a crisis or someone is actually screwed up. So what you need to do is you need to go like, okay, so what, what, what is the convincing answer that I will tell my employees that they will go like, yeah, no, I still want to work there because of X, Y, and Z. And that usually is doing the right thing, even though it's the hard thing. Mm -hmm. I think people will respect that tremendously. But if it's like, oh, you gave into these people because they're unhappy, like that's great for these people in that moment. But that really sucks for the people who happen to disagree with it. Mm-hmm. Which is why we so adamantly stay out of politics, which people hate when I say that. And, and a lot of folks in my profession hate that because they just get this tremendous pressure from employees going like, you need to take a stance on X. Otherwise I don't like you. And I'm like, I don't care because I want everybody to be able to work here. And but that's a whole nother topic. Yep. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that'll that'll probably come up a lot on the future episodes of the show. Um, so uh, yeah. So then the, the the sort of other kind of big change. So another question from Twitter that kind of relates to this kind of changed environment. And I think this is actually a very interesting question. 
given the ultra the ultra short social media news cycles, right? Where you know, you know, the running joke is like, whatever happened three days ago might as well have happened six months ago, right? Um, just because like so much, it just feels like so much crazy stuff happens every day now. Um, is doing nothing and riding the news cycle out a valid strategy uh, for individuals, companies facing an unfavorable narrative crisis? Well, this is where you and I disagree. I think so, depending on what it is. And okay. you just get so worked up that you can't ever handle that. And <laughs> if it's if it's sort of a nothing thing and like it'll get replaced by whatever somebody does, either on the San Francisco school board or in Washington, whatever, like like day after tomorrow, like right. why are we spending energy on it? Right. There are certain people, and this is where like if you're a CEO, you need to decide like who are you and like what can you handle? And if you're a comms person partnering with that CEO, you just need to figure out like, okay, so how is that person wired and what can they handle? And mm -hmm. some are very good at going like, I'm not going to engage because whatever. And some people going like, no, I'm always going to engage because I just can't stand the fact that people say these stuff, these things that are unfair. Right. The prop either I think is fine. The problem are the people who flip flop. Because then like one time you're responding, one time you're not responding, and then you kind of don't stand for anything. And if we've learned one thing in this time is that people need to, they want to understand who you are. That's sort of a base level requirement. And, you know, if you're a CEO and you think that's unfair and you should have your blah, 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 it's just like, that's it. That's table stakes. So pick a lane and then stick with the lane. But I think either lane is workable, but, you know, depends on what your stomach is. Yeah, well, the concern you have, and I mean, honestly, I was trained like this. Like, they, they, you get trained on this, you know, as a CEO, you kind of go through media training and you try to talk to, you know, people have been through this. And they basically all tell you, like, it's basically like rule number one, at least in the old playbook for CEOs always was like, you either set your narrative or somebody else sets it for you. Right. right. And so, like, you have to, you know, part of being a CEO, for example, is being out there and telling the story and articulating the strategy and, like, you know, basically, like, making sure that people have an accurate understanding of the company. Um, and, but, and as I said, you know, that's both internal, external and so forth. Um, and then if you're not doing that, and if you're not like basically riding herd on that, then, you know, the narrative can turn against you. Other people get to define it. And so, you know, I, I would say CEOs or, or leaders are not just like, they, they may be, they're certainly emotional about, about, especially like personal attacks. Um, but it's not just that it's also this idea that the narrative can slip away from you if you're not on top of it. Yeah, but like the uh, the other side of that is how much oxygen are you going to give to some, you know, obscure whoever mm -hmm. who goes off on a rant on whatever, right? And like, particularly if you do have a big megaphone, like, mm -hmm. and then you go, wow, this is wrong because of X, Y, and Z. Then all of a sudden, like that, that person found a whole new audience. Yeah. And so it's, it's a, just like a... It's a tricky balance. I I think you kind of need to get your head straight around like, okay, who am I? What can yeah. I tolerate? And then stick with that. Yeah. You, you, I'm sure you know, it's, uh, this, for people who haven't heard in the audience, it's the, the Streisand effect. Um, yes. Is, I think the, the, the term of art for this, right? I don't even remember the specific story, but the story goes that somebody said something nasty about Barbara Streisand once and she <laughs> re retaliated with the full force of her celebrity. Um, and a, a well, million like, people. Yeah. Yeah, the whole like, what's the woman's name? Uh, the family, the famous actress, and she bought Bar Barbella, like that movie. She bought every copy. Like, oh, she Jane, made that, J Jane, Jane Fonda. Fonda. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, sure. She made that thing so much better, bigger than it ever was. Right? <laughs> like, I think I've seen the movie. I forget. Like, but like because of that. Right. Right. It became notorious. Therefore, a cult classic. Exactly.
By the way, by the way, it's a terrible, truly terrible movie. No, it's, um, it's a shitty movie, but like she made it a movie. <laughs> she made it a thing. Yes. Um, okay, good. That was great. Okay, so now we're going to go and into it's, the... And by the way, the counterpoint, if we're sticking with actresses, is, is Elizabeth Taylor. She's like, just spell my name right. I don't give a right. shit. Right, right. Well, actually, that's a good question. So, okay, so let me ask you a question based on that. So the, the composer, John Cage, uh, who, you know, was very controversial in his day, he once said that you, you should measure your PR by the, 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 um, the number of in inches tall your stack of press clippings are, um, <laughs> sort of completely regardless of whether it's, you know, it's good or bad coverage. Like, you know, basically, basically, like, you know, he was a musician. And so it's, it's like bad reviews are basically as good as good reviews because, like, you're still in the paper and you're becoming famous. Like, you know, and, and I would say, like, look, there, we could probably both name there are certain, let's say, national figures who have embraced that strategy. Um, uh, I out. can't think of anybody. That's yeah, I don't crazy. know. Maybe, maybe somebody <laughs> will be in the news one day who will have that property, but where they're, they're, they're basically, right, willing to embrace, you know, any kind of publicity at any time, including the really bad kinds. Um, mm -hmm. Like, how how far i mean there is something to that right i mean there 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 is something i mean you can clearly put you can clearly push that too far but like there is something especially for like consumer facing brands and for like public figures who like are trying to attract an audience you know there is something about putting on a show and there is something about that show not just being i'm sweet and wonderful but like that show having drama and conflict um and people arguing about it and talking about it and becoming like the water cooler you know kind of kind of topic of conversation so like how how if if you if you had a if you had a client who kind of wanted to lean a little bit into that like how far would you advise them to lean before it clearly tips over? I mean, so personally, I have a hard time with that because I've so carefully curated like every reputation I've ever managed, blah blah blah, yeah. and like it's 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 really hard for me personally. Yeah. But you know, I'm just gonna say something you're gonna hate, but like if Larry Ellison ran Facebook, like. He doesn't give a shit. Right. You know what I mean? And like that is a feature in a situation where you constantly criticize, right? So that like that, that is a thing. You just need to like I think you 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 can't run that as a strategy. It is either something that you can stomach or not. Right. If you can stomach it, great. So case in point, um, Vlad is not here to talk about it, and I've actually not talked about to him about it. But like, you know, his app downloads are through the roof. I don't know that he's enjoying his situation, right? And all the attacks that he's getting. So, yeah. you know, like, is it a net positive for the app downloads? Great, but I don't know. Right. I, I right. personally, I would. I would only recommend that for people who really, really, really do not, they only care about quote unquote ratings, you know what I yeah, mean? Right, right. And and nothing else. But you have to be very clear in your mind that like, you know, you do the thing, the story runs or people pile onto you on Twitter and you enjoy it because the numbers are good. Yeah. And of course, you know, the other thing would be right. You, you can't ever, you can't ever count on being able to walk anything back. Right. Cause like you no. never know, you never know when the next stunt is going to be the thing in the first line of your obituary. Yes, right? exactly. Larry, Larry, but yeah, I mean, but like you could argue too many people, including me, live their life by like what, you know, what are people going to say when you're dead? Right. right and I right. don't want them to say bad things. I want to leave the planet slightly better than I found it. But like, you know, right. it's not as exciting as all the ratings for both, I suppose. Right. On the show. So for people who don't remember the, the, the sort of glory days of when Larry used to really lean into this stuff. So Larry, Larry Ellison ran this huge software company, Oracle. They were one of the companies that was fighting with Microsoft in the 90s. And so 
uh, it turns out Oracle during one of the big uh, fights, they got caught, um, caught, quite literally caught. They, they had hired a, a private investigator firm to investigate Microsoft and, and, and its leadership. And they, they literally got caught going through Microsoft's trash, like their, their, their actual physical, physical trash. Oh, um, they also went through Sybase's trash, like Bob Epstein's, <laughs> Mark Hoffman, and guess who was working PR for Sybase back at the time? Me. There we, there we go. There we go. And we pitched this story to the Chronicle, which was a big deal. I think it was Don Clark at the time. And you know what he said, Larry? He's like, sure we did. Right. Proud of it, right. basically. Yes. And like the story, I mean, they wrote the story, but like he won. Yeah, it's, he gave in the Microsoft case. He literally gave a press conference, and he said, "Yes, we." He said in the, in the Microsoft case, he said, "Yes, we did it. Somebody had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> These people need to be investigated." And then he was asked. I mean, he's He was asked later on. He was asked at a, as you know, somebody was doing like a follow up thing, and they were like, "Well, like you know, how would you feel if like Microsoft did this to you?" And he's like, "Oh, we'll happily ship Microsoft all of our trash. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll put it on a truck, and we'll have it there by tomorrow." Yeah, but the thing is, you have to be that person. Right. Right. Like, this is the funny thing. People go like, oh, you know, remember when like people say like, oh, we don't need to be profitable. We'll just do what Jeff Bezos does. Well, right. but then you have to be that guy, too. Right. right. Like tolerate the criticism that comes with that. And th that's just not everybody's cup of tea. And I have not I mean. I'm not even sure I personally know anybody who is like that. But yeah. as far as public figures go, there are not many people who actually can stomach it. People yeah. want to be liked. <laughs> they do. Oh, well. We do. Um, so on the um, we're on the back half of the show. We're at, at 4.37. Um, and uh, so let us switch to the second phase. And so the second phase, these are kind of more practical, pragmatic questions um, on, okay. on how to on how to like do, do things in a company. Um, so one that's, you know, very timely and topical, um, if, also from Twitter. So um, how can companies or startups uh, build a full stack media machine? Uh, um, where does one start? How do you scale it? And who has done it well? And maybe you could describe kind of what, what the question means, what, what, what they mean by that question. Yeah, I'm not sure what they mean by that question, but like, let well, me take a stab I'll, at it. Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Well, I just think it means basically like having a, a company that does its own original content. Um, it has its own like original media uh, outbound effort as opposed to, you know, as opposed to working through third parties, uh, you know, or only working through third parties. Right. So number one advice is actually start. I see a lot of people contort themselves into over plans and how should they do it, blah, blah, blah. just start. So, and, and that sounds like a, that sounds like a banal thing to say, but like, I think there's a lot of, you know, stuff that falls into the bucket of writer's block where people just can't get going on it because it seems daunting, just start. So if you are a CEO and you're running a company, you're like, okay, how do I do this? Like it starts with like, okay, what medium are you most comfortable with? Are you like a great conversationalist? Are you a good presenter? Are you a decent writer? Like, you, Or do you think you have comfort or talent in any of those buckets, right? And then do that and work from there and like build the muscle and do it. And by the way, you can hire editors. I mean, we have a whole bunch of them. Some of them are in this um, room, I'm sure. Like, but like, you have to actually be part of the creation machine because as a CEO or as a product leader, you are the owner of that story and you don't have to be a good writer. Like I, I've told some folks that I won't name, we said like, just barf on the keyboard board. It doesn't matter. Just get started somewhere. Just do, do your thing 
and like you'll get really, really good at it. I think that's just a way to start and start experimenting. And then I think for the comms person is figure out like what is your CEO and the various and other sundry other people that you work with, what are they good at? So for example, I'll just pick on our own people. Like Mark, I have I don't think I've ever asked you to do a presentation. Hmm. And I think you would probably be okay at presenting. No, I'm actually but, not. Well, so it would be such a gigantic investment of time and yep. you're good. You're a very good interview and you're good at talking and you're good at Twitter, which has its own problems, whatever. But like, so it's just like lean into what the person is good at. Like <laughs> Ben, well, pick on Ben. Like it's easier to pick on founders than other people. Like, like Ben on a panel would just be a terrible idea because his competitive enterprise software juices would come out and he would just try to demolish the other panelists and he would possibly maybe succeed, but it's just a terrible idea, right? But like Ben is really good. He's a really good writer with very specific thinking. So just as a comps person, figure out like, what is this person actually good at? And, mm -hmm. and if they're an introvert and they have an engineering background and they're like not very trustful of people, just like stick them with people who are like-minded and do long form interviews there are so many podcasts out there, right? Where people can geek out on topics that are of their choosing, that are pretty safe, that are great. I mean, podcasts are great for introverts, right? Clubhouse mm -hmm. is great for introverts, right? You don't have to, you don't have to like have slick hair or like figure out what to wear or whatever, right? It's just like, you just talk about stuff you know and the rest kind of take care, takes care of itself. So figure out the median, figure out what you feel most comfortable with in, but start. That is the most important thing. I've, I've had so many conversations with folks that where they just plan and plan and plan and they need to hire just the right person and all that kind of stuff. And it's just kind of beside the point. Just start, start experimenting, which by the way, is why I'm doing this damn show. Because <laughs> I, I asked Mark, I'm like, you think I should do a show? And he's like, it's fucking obvious. Without the fuck word in it. So um, that's the point. Just get started. Yeah. And then, yeah. So how, how far, you know, kind of as, as, you know, there, there are more and more examples of this now, right. And we're, you know, we're, we're doing some of this and there are other companies that are kind of being very successful doing different kinds of like outbound original content, right. Who, who aren't themselves, you know, typically media companies, but have like, you know, significant, significant efforts in the space. And some are, you know, it's working very well for some people through all these new channels. And so like, how, how far do you think non-media companies are going to push this kind of thing in the, you know, over like the next five years, like how, how, how aggressive are people going to get? Well, my plan is to get very, very aggressive. So speaking for myself and for yeah. us, um, we're going to get very, very aggressive. And it's not, it's really by popular demand, right? Like the anecdotal feedback we get from fellow builders, from particularly from like surprisingly from people in big companies who actually have to figure out like, how, how do I think about crypto? What are these products? Should I partner? Is this stuff going to be threatening to me? Like people have to actually figure this stuff out. And they're like, can we have more, please? Like, and then it goes all the way to legislators. Like, oh my God, I am going to draft legislation. That's what legislators do, apparently, based on this podcast, right? So by popular demand, we're like, we need to double down on it because people get it seems to be a um a sort of a a, a white space that is not filled right now. But mm -hmm. I suspect that there are a lot of companies, just think about enterprise software, think about anything that's not naturally mainstream, mm -hmm. 
there is a huge opportunity to do your own content because you are reaching developers, you're reaching security experts. And security is actually fairly, it does have some media and all of that, but they are so, 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 so many white spaces where people don't have stuff to read or listen to or watch or whatnot. And so I suspect that the forward-thinking companies are going to lean hard into that because it is a way to connect with people very directly on stuff that you both care about. And this is the, I think there's this other question about like, oh, the big platforms versus, you know, is there going to be a more fragmented thing? I think there are some niche platforms that are going to be very, very, that are going to emerge that are very powerful, mm -hmm. right? Like having a network of all security people that goes really, really deep on some of the threats and some of the latest, like that's powerful stuff. Yeah, for sure. And then, of course, I can't help asking, you know, so Clubhouse, so, you know, here we are in Clubhouse. And of course, for people who don't know, Clubhouse is a is a portfolio company of ours. Like as as a, as a communications professional, Margaret, like how how do you like assuming, you know, let's assume Clubhouse continues to grow and flourish. Like what what role do you think Clubhouse will play in this landscape? And if you were if you were advising, if you were still advising clients, like how would you advise them to think about it? Well, you know, I do talk to portfolio companies, so yep, it is right. sort of like advising time. You do uh, a lot of that, yes. 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 Yeah, so yeah, I think I so again it goes back to like, is this something that we think that the key people are good at and it's natural to them? Mm -hmm. If 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 they'll just be, you know, jaws clenched, I cannot do this, right? Like maybe, you know, writing is a better medium, right? But yeah. if if you think these semi-social deep conversations with people from across you know some spread of the network that's your jam then i definitely think i think definitely somebody in the company should experiment with it because um last i checked the um clubhouse numbers are the community is growing very very rapidly and i think one of the things that i like about it personally just for my own show is it's very focused on creators so I can moderate, I can, you know, kind of have choices as to who goes on and whatnot. And there are a bunch of people who raise their hands. I apologize. Like, I will include you in future Clubhouse shows. But that, like, I think that is a really, really compelling um, idea. And it's also, um, quite frankly, it's it's good to have alternative big networks that emerge that give people options. Right. Yep. Okay, good. And then that leads to actually to a very related question from Twitter. So um, how should a CEO think about their employees on social media? Uh, for example, you have, a, for example, suppose, <laughs> Margaret, suppose the following hypothetical. Um, you have a rogue employee venting on Twitter, um, which, you know, maybe may happen someday to you. Um, on the one hand, <laughs> uh, the question goes, on the one hand, you must allow for individuals to voice their opinion. And there's, you know, some, there's some question there about must, right? Which is like, you know, people do have freedom of speech rights, but at the same time, companies can have policies. So. You know, there, there are debates around that. And then it says, you know, on the other hand, not, not all employees have access to the truth in any given company or, you know, or might, you know, misrepresent things or might, you know, be inflammatory or, or, or so forth. And so, like, what's what, what do you think are like, what are the best, like, modern ways to, like, deal with the fact that, that your, all your employees might be on social media and they, they all might want to, uh, you know, speak on, 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 you know, on any topic at any time? Well, so that's, you know, at the heart of it, it's actually an internal communications issue. Because at the heart of it, so particularly when people go negative on social platforms, right? That is a failure of your internal communications function. And then maybe a failure of your internal culture mm -hmm. where people don't feel heard and they have hopefully tried to be heard internally. They haven't gotten answers 
and they feel like th- this is their their resort. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's very unfortunate. So it's it, if that happens, you need to look at what's the culture, what is the internal communication system like, and then at the very pedestrian level, have a freaking social media policy and sort mm-hmm. of say like what's okay and what's not. And then you're draw, walking the tension. I'm sure you know our uh, lawyer, like Brian, who's amazing, is going to go like, "Oh, you can't tell people what to say on Twitter with free speech, blah blah blah." I get it. Like I totally get it. But have general guidelines that say like, "Hey, if you're on social media and you decide that you're going to put the company name in your Twitter handle, for example, that's probably the most explosive of the social media platforms, at least in my mind right now." Um, right what you say will be perceived as, you know, you're speaking for the company mm-hmm. or you're speaking against the company as a company employee. So that becomes pretty explosive stuff. So like, you know, I discourage people from doing that. Um, so if people want to talk on social media from the firm, I very much am in favor of it, but I encourage them to talk about what they know, like what is their job at the firm? Like, so for example, you will notice that I'm not giving investment advice (laughs) on this clubhouse show because that's other people's jobs. Right. And, um, and if people go negative on Twitter or any of the social platforms, like it's time to have a conversation, understand what the concerns are and whether they're legit. And then you get into the popularity contest question, right? Like, so where at some point it becomes a question where it's like, okay, if you really aren't aligned with what we do or who we are as a company, then we need to make some changes here and like we're gonna have to have that conversation but right. fundamentally i think this is a culture and an internal comms problem not a twitter problem yeah what uh at what stage what at what size of a company do you think a company should think seriously about having an actual internal comms function well as the ceo you're the holder of the comp the company culture and the company values whether you have actually like had a chance to write them down or not like you are the example. And the minute I would say you are not able to have an actual relationship with your every single employee at the company, and you may run the risk of not remembering everybody's name, you need to have for sure a strong HR function. And by that, I don't mean a recruiting function. And if you're lucky, that HR function is also great at the internal comps part. And if you're not, but it's a really strong HR function, it's totally fine. You need to hire the first comps person. And that that probably that first comps person has a dual role, internal and external, which by the way, uh, a good medium post or a good blog post or a good tweet storm or a good clubhouse show is as much internal comms as it is external comms. It's all mm-hmm. the same thing. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, and then one of the things that you'll often hear people say, uh, or at least I've heard CEOs say a lot over the years is, and they usually say this with some level of shock and maybe they sound a little bit wounded, um, which is their employees often believe what people on the outside are saying about the company uh, as much as or more so uh, versus what management is saying. Yeah, it's a, that's very painful. Um, I've gone through this myself and um, sometimes I go through it now, but like it, it's very painful where you go like, but wait, shouldn't they know better? Right. But there's a powerful thing. Um, I think we've all, some of us have gone through this in our own personal way. Like I, I remember ben, ben having the same conversation over and over again with um, founding CEOs and whatnot. And then he started to write stuff down and became real. Yeah. There right. is a thing about like, 
writing stuff down yourself or having fortune write it down or whoever it is where it becomes quote unquote official. And that is unfortunately true, whether it's accurate or not. So that's, that's just the thing. And it is your job to be more compelling and more convincing and more communicative than the outside stories. And I, you know, there's just no way around it. It's just, that just is. Yeah, and that goes back to kind of what you said before, the, the way we often describe it, right? Which is, do you have a perception problem or, or a reality problem? And right, right and, and, may, and maybe like, you know, maybe the first thing is like, first of all, like, do you actually, for example, have a strategy that the employees <laughs> believe in, right? Like step one, um, you know, do you have one to communicate um, that's, that's actually good? And then, you know, step two or, or a message. Um, and then, yeah, step two is like, how good are you actually as, a, as an internal communicator? And maybe you're not quite as good as you think. Yeah. And and the thing is, like, there, there comes a point where, I I mean, hopefully nobody has to go through this, but I sort of believe we all go through this at one point or another in our careers where, you know, things are going fine, you think, and they're going okay, you think, the product is making progress, you think, you wish it made more progress, you think, on and on and on. And then somebody writes down that you're way behind schedule and it kind of really sucks, blah, blah, blah. And it's kind of true. So, and then the employees go like, yeah, that one, that one, the one that I wasn't ever going to say out loud because I'm loyal to the company. That's actually true. Right. And like, that is a real thing. It's not like all the stories that are being written are wrong. Right. Some of them are wrong, but some of them are just painfully obvious. So if the min this is what I've learned, like particularly in like hiring people, we once you start to have doubts, you're usually too late, kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah. once you start thinking like, I don't know about this particular product strategy, I'll bet you ten bucks you're right, and you're probably late. So yeah. right. the the thing is to get ahead of it before someone who writes that down. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Good. We're at uh, four fifty three. About seven minutes left. Um, let's do maybe the close off on on, on maybe a few stories. Um, and, um, and so the uh, question from Twitter is a great, uh, starting point. Um, uh, do you have a favorite comeback story of a startup emerging from the ashes after a major crisis and what can other builders, uh, learn, uh, from that? Okay. So there, I was worried you would actually ask this question because all the good stories I cannot say, mm. right? Well, except these are success. I mean, these are the, the question. Well, was like yeah, successful but cases, like, right? So there are, I mean, we Margaret, can take just, this just pretend, just pretend it's just you and me. Yeah, no, right. Uh, the thing is, here's the reason why a lot of folks would rather not be reminded of yeah. those stories. That's, yeah. that's the, that's the real issue, right? I've had yeah. successful product recalls. I've had successful, you know, fixes to how the rules work like, but like if I say anything else, then it just reminds the CEOs, like, did you really have to bring that up? So right, the right. only one I really feel confident no one will mind is um, tiny spec. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you know, please. most of the audience probably won't know what tiny spec is, but tiny spec is a company that created a product called glitch, which was an abject failure. I mean, it was beautiful and it was gorgeous and it was incredibly creative and it just fucking failed. And it was a failure until it became Slack. And now we call it a pivot. Right. And so it's great because it all turned out okay. But 
you know, these, these stories usually by the time you can actually talk about them proudly and people don't mind, they were so long in the past, but yeah. I remember, and, you know, and then Stuart, like, this is a lesson, you know, if you want to get crisis lessons, crisis advice from Stuart, when he had to shut down glitch, you know, the Stuart is the easiest guy to advise ever because he doesn't really need advice. He just wants a little confirmation. So he's like, so I'm going to shut this down and I'm going to write a blog post about glitch. And like in the blog post was such a poem to like to the employees and we all partnered and helping every single employee find a job. And he owned the fact that it didn't work and it was just so beautiful. And then we had another conversation where he's like, well, I'm going to do the enterprise software company. And I'm in, in my, inside my head, I'm like, okay, here's one of the most creative people I've ever come across doing enterprise software. That is great. And, and he's like, well, we have the thing. We all decided we don't ever want to have another job without the product. I'm like, okay, that sounds good. And he's like, well, I need to launch the thing. And I'm like, I don't think you can launch it without customers because it's just not going to feel credible. He's like, no, I think I'm going to have to have like, I don't know, maybe like 30 or 40 customers. And like, he did just that. So it became a pivot. Mm -hmm. But the key lessons for anyone listening is like, he owned it and he went all the way out, both culturally and like in terms of honesty and owning it. And then he actually did have a successful second act. They yeah. don't all end like that, but yeah. it's gorgeous when they do. Well, maybe one of the big, maybe one of the big takeaways from that is, you know, I, I, like he was extremely genuine, I think would be the maybe right way to put it. Right. Oh, yeah. Just like, he, yeah. He, he was clear eyed. He was like, this is not working. Yeah. And we all know that it's not working. Like the, the, I think he had like, uh, I remember doing a positioning workshop with them and like he had the Russian founding engineer sing a song. Everyone's moved to tears. I mean, like there was like the most incredible team. It was like 13 people. They were like right. amazing. And right. they were all clear eyed because they were all so tight that they knew it was okay to be in a war together and lose. And they were still going to be okay with each other. That's right. a culture. Yeah. And that, on that culture, he built Slack. Yeah. So it all goes back to culture and yep. communications comes from there. Hey, Mark, before we end the show, sure. I just want to make sure that people um, send either questions on Twitter or if you have a good story, like a good 4B story or just a good building story. Like, I think, you know, building stories are also good. Like, and if you want to be on the show, like just DM me or tweet at me or email me if you know me or text me because um, um, I'm totally open to ideas. Good, fantastic. Maybe give your market, maybe give your Twitter handle. Yeah, I'm at Wenmarkers, which is W-E, two N's as Nancy, M as Mary, A-C-H-E-R-S. So I think the audience included is like, we have the day job and then we have the clubhouse job at night, right. yep. which um, I think is going to take me through 11 p.m. tonight. So, yay. <laughs> Perfect. Yes, I have, I have three clubhouse shows today. This is my first of three. Thank I'm you, Mark. Excited. I appreciate it. Very excited. So 4 to 4.59, very precise timing. Margaret, very well done. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us on the inaugural show. Um, and we will uh, we will see you here next time. Yeah, see you next week. Thanks, guys. Okay. Thanks, Margaret. Bye-bye.